0: And welcome to Art Waves, a podcast about arts and culture in small rural towns. My name is Marian Myers, and I'm curious to learn more about the arts and the impact they have on my small town of Port Perry in the rural township of Skugog, Ontario, in the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of Skugog Island. I've discovered a wide variety of passionate people creating, coaching, and connecting in my community. And today we're talking to Lucy E. M. Black, the author. Welcome Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to have you. Lucy, tell us about your writing and what you write about. Let's get, get right into it. Let's just like yeah, start what, it simple. What do you, what do you write about? <laughs> um,
1: writing for me is about bearing witness, and I I endeavor in my writing um, to bear witness to those things um, that I find meaningful in life, um, and to those people I've encountered um, whose stories I think deserve to be told. Um, to issues and concerns and history that I think is important to document. Um, I've been very fortunate. I've had um, three books published so far. The first um, book was a collection of short stories published by Inanna, which is a feminist press. And those stories um, were fictional stories, but each one of them um, was based on someone I had encountered in life and they were stories of women experiencing dislocation. So immigrating to a new country, dealing with the death of a loved one in a whole variety of circumstances, um, just coping with their new realities. Um, it's not a particularly happy book, I've been told, but it's um, a truthful book and it, it bear witness bears witness, I hope, um, to the lives of those women who are struggling. Um, my second book was a historical fiction. Um, it was based upon a 19th century um, novel of manners, very much in the style of Jane Austen um, or Charlotte Bronte. And um, Jane Austen, oh, my favorite. <laughs> me too, yeah. me too. Um, I was um, a 19th century British fiction um, fanatic um, as a graduate student, and I think all of that came out in the pages of this book. But it's Eleanor Curtin. Uh, so historical fiction. is based on the true story of a poisoning um, that took place east of Port Perry um, in Cartwright Township. And um, one of the things that I was able to do in that, in that novel, besides tell the story of Eleanor, was embed a lot of research about 19th century medicine. And um, that that was an area that really interested me. And uh, I delve fairly deeply um, into the medical practices, the period. And um, as a result, have been invited to, to speak at medical museums, et cetera, um, about the work that's represented in that novel. Um, so again, bearing witness to the medical practice, as well as to a woman who immigrated in 1870. So um,
0: what was the poisoning all about? Oh,
1: it's a great story. Do
0: you want to hear the story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us the story Oh a little. Not like,
1: not to spoil it when people buy okay. it, but. All right. I won't tell you the whole thing. But um, my, my husband and I had a farm in Cartwright Township. And my writing room looked out over the farm fields and I could see a good two miles down the road. And I noticed there was one farm that was never, never um, tilled or had crops growing on it. So we were visiting with an older farming couple in the community one Sunday afternoon and um, Don Green and um, his great grandparents um, were among the earlier settlers of the area and Irish, and uh, Don's a real storyteller. And I asked him why the farm was fallow. And he said to me, ah, well, the locals believe the land is cursed. And um, when I asked him to explain, he told me that um, in the period of the 1850s, 1860s, just at the tail end of the massive Irish immigration due to the potato famine, A farming family had come to Cartwright Township and cleared the land and built a home in order to get title to the land, and they'd done that, and they were farming, and a rich Irish spinster cousin came to visit them, and they decided to poison her so they could steal all her money.
0: And And how could she have had much money?
1: Well, she was a rich Irish spinster so goodness knows, um, her father had no sons presumably, and um, she had inherited the family fortune. So she had come to visit them in the Canada, as it was then, and uh, they put poison in her food. And unknown to them, when she was feeling ill, she went out to the farmyard, and she was sick to her stomach. The animals came along, and they they ate her sick. This went on for a couple of weeks and the farmer noticed one day that his animals were ailing and they were lying on their sides in in the barnyard. So he drove um, his rig into Port Perry and um, connected with a a man here who knew something about animals. There were no vets living here at the time. And that, that gentleman came out to the farm and recognized the signs of poisoning right away and knew that something was amok. So he contacted the authorities in Bowmanville, who rode out on horseback the next morning. When they arrived, the farm was empty. There was no sign of animals dead or alive, no farm equipment, no furniture in the house, no people. Nobody on the road heard them packing up and leaving in the night. And when a search went out, um, they searched as far as Peterborough, and no trace could be found of these people. So the story went around the township, but the little people had spirited them away in the night and cursed the land for a 100 years. Mm. And it was over 110 years before anyone took that land up.
0: Wow, and farmed it and you made it into the made it into a story
1: i made that the core of the story absolutely yeah and then um well maybe tell us a little bit about stella's carpet stella's carpet is um a different um novel again my parents were in europe during the second world war my mother was in holland Um, my father was polish My father was taken prisoner of war by the Russians. Um, So first, as you know, Germany invaded Poland and then Russia came in on the other side. And one of the things the Russians did was they came in and they swooped up young men and children and they took them back um, to Russia where they put them in work camps. And so that was my father's fate fairly early on in the war. My mother um, came from a large family um, and all of the men in her family were involved in the Dutch resistance and so they were smuggling people through their home hidden underneath the dining room floor. Um, So she had a very different kind of experience but also very traumatic in lots of ways. Those um, were stories that I grew up with. Um, My parents were both very damaged by their war experiences And um, I realized um, many years later, um, when I was working with um, new immigrant families to Canada, um, that the trauma my parents had experienced in post-World War II Europe, that trauma and the signs of that trauma were very similar um, to the sorts of things I was seeing in the families that I was working with. I, I was a career educator, and um, at the time I was working in Whitby as a vice principal with um, families who are very new to the country. Um, Whitby was considered a port of entry, and they these families were placed there in an attempt to house them and assimilate them into the community. And because I recognized those signs, I became very interested And what I later learned was called intergenerational trauma. And intergenerational trauma um, essentially describes what happens to the second and third generation of people who have experienced horrific events in their lives. So not just um, World War II or or the Holocaust, although that's where the research began, but also victims of you know, Camar Rouge, Arab Spring, the Vietnam War, Holocaust, War, um, residential schools, and one of the things that that research has shown us is that that trauma can be so intense that a person's DNA is actually affected, and that DNA, as you know, is passed on to second and third generations. And epigenetics, which is the study that looks at these things, has actually been able to identify specific examples of changes in people's DNA as a result of intense trauma. So for years, um, social workers, social scientists believed that intergenerational trauma was simply a matter of parenting choices. Um, People had been traumatized. So, you know, they were making certain choices. Um, but, but recently, um, in the last several years, they've discovered it. it's not just a socialization, there is actually um, a physical aspect mm-hmm. to the trauma. And again, I thought it was important to bear witness to those kinds of stories. I think when we're looking at what's taking place, um, currently in the Ukraine, um, but also Syria. Um, there are just so many horrific experiences that people are, are trying to come to terms with. Um, and even when they're safe, even when they've come to a, a new country full of promise, they still have to, to reconcile what has happened to them. And I think it's important to bear witness to that so that we can understand um, and be compassionate and supportive and put resources in place for them. And so
0: Stella's Carpet um, tells the story of uh, a a family that has that um, trauma that is being passed down in one of the main characters in it doesn't behave particularly well. And we don't like her when we read the book, do we? We're not meant to. Um, and, and we think she's actually quite mean to her father and her mother. Can you kind of describe how um, you've, you've built that into the story?
1: So the, the main story, if you will, um, centers around the Lipinski family. And grandmother and grandfather Lipinski, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in the novel. We're both Polish. And those stories that are told in the novel are, are my father's stories. Those stories are all true. <clears throat> and um, the Lipinskis have come to Canada for a new life. And they have a daughter, um, Pamela, who they adore. And they want to give her everything that this new country has to afford, but they're damaged people. So they barricade their house at night with steel shell shutters, and they keep a year's worth of food and water in the basement in case they have to hold themselves up. And and Pamela absolutely detests what she views as her parents' paranoia.
0: She's embarrassed by it, isn't she? She's
1: totally embarrassed by it. And, and her father is seen as quite extreme by her friends in the neighborhood. And they're afraid of him. They they think he's crazy. And um, she just wants something completely different. But she's very damaged by their trauma, not just by being embarrassed, but she's damaged by her trauma And she's very self-absorbed, which sort of fits that profile. And she passes on a real awkwardness around people to her daughter, Stella. And Stella's carpet really is about Stella, and it's about her extended family. So we see the trauma from the Lipinskys. We see it evidenced in man's life, and we see it manifested gently, but also there in Stella's life. At the same time, we have a parallel trauma taking place with a woman named Fatima. And um, Fatima and her family immigrated um, during the fall of the Shah. Fatima had been imprisoned um, briefly, just for about three days. And her experiences and her family's experiences are based on my research. but also on some of the families that I dealt with when I was working as a vice principal. So we see trauma manifested in Fatima's story as well. Um, Fatima becomes quite ill in the novel, as you know, and um, some of the research indicates um, that that illness um, is a manifestation of the deep trauma that she experienced Mm -hmm. as a young woman. Mm -hmm. So... I hope that I've captured two different sets um, of experiences with intergenerational drama and tried to highlight them a little for the readers in order to bear witness. Mm-hmm. And we have a
0: rather upper crust family character that plays and is the link between the two families. And that's quite interesting too. I, I really enjoyed that way of bringing it to uh, a reader that that we actually had three families that we got to know you you've named the two that were the most important and and uh but that third family as a contrast we get to see that too and it's it's great i think i told you the recently i read stella's carpet for the second time and cried again you know i mean it's, <laughs> I'm <so> it's, glad. <laughs> it's i mean it's a very uh, there's lots in the novel that's lovely and 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 there are some funny little bits in it too it's it's not but then you can still cry all over again when you read it so how did you get published let's just change the the um, conversation
1: i um have been writing all of my life ever since i was very young um in my 20s um At university, primarily, I started working um, very hard um, on my short stories and sending them out to literary magazines and journals and and was fortunate enough to have a number of those pieces accepted for publication. Um, I published pieces in in Britain, um, in Ireland, in the United States and here in Canada. And um, but making the leap. Um, to collecting those together and putting them into a book um, was a really big leap for me. I I love to write, but I also had a career as an educator, which I was incredibly passionate about and which took a lot of my emotional and creative energy. But my husband was very supportive and one year for Christmas, he bought me um, a registration with the Humber School of Writing. And they have a correspondence um, writing program for people with manuscripts um, to help them polish them and get oh. them ready for publication. It's a program I, I recommend very highly. And so it, that program still exists at Humber College? It absolutely does. There's mm. information about it on my website under my blogs. Um, So, I was partnered with a writing mentor, very fortunate, um, and it was Donna Morrissey. Mm. Um, She's a Newfoundland writer. You may know her work.
0: Of course.
1: And um, we just clicked. I found that she was um, a very respectful editor and um, was able to really help me pull the collection together and um, encouraged me. To start sending it out, so I did. Um, and I sent it to Anana, um, which is a feminist press, and they accepted it in really short order for a publisher um, less than three months and said that they felt that it made a real contribution um, to feminist writing. So I was very pleased and honored, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> to be published by them. <coughs> But one of the other publishers I'd set my work to was a little press that I was really interested in out of Niagara Falls called Seraphim Publishing. And I thought they published really good, interesting books. And um, right after I'd signed my contract with Inanna at York University, I received um, an email from Seraphim saying they'd like to publish the short story collection, so I, I wrote them back. I was going
0: to ask you that question. Do you did you apply out to multiple places all at the same time? Because if you're going to wait three months, you don't wait for one to come back and say yes or no. Mm. You just keep putting them out there. That's yeah. interesting. I,
1: I have I, I I think I sent out to about six at once, and normally the wait time is more than a year. Mm. Um. Anyway, I I wrote the publisher back and and said that I I'd already placed the collection, but I had a novel manuscript, and if there was any chance she'd be interested in looking at that, I'd love to share it with her. Oh, clever you, yes. So I I sent her Eleanor Curtin, and um, within two weeks, she'd offered me a publishing contract for that, so I ended up having the two books come out in the same year in 2017, which was highly unusual. And um, I had had some personal um, health issues and um, that year a brush with cancer. And my husband said, I really want you to enjoy your novel and your short story collection much. I think you should retire early. And so I did. <laughs> and I, I had given absolutely no thought to it. I, I just assumed I'd keep working forever, I think. Um, but with his encouragement, I retired early, gave the board two weeks' notice, and uh, just to have really been focusing on my writing life instead. And uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful time.
0: I'll just take a break there. That's perfect. That's just great. So I'm just going to wait for a second. And, um, I think we got the story of getting published done pretty well there. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, Lucy, are you part of writing circles? Is that, you know, is that part of something that you do as a writer?
1: I have a writer's network that's a a personal network that I've built over a number of years, Um, and uh, a group of trusted um, writer friends, and we exchange work regularly two or three times a week and um, critique each other's work. Um, I also have a writing group, um, again, um, carefully chosen, group of women writers um, and we meet every three to four weeks um, and um, critique each other's work and offer each other's support. I feel um, that it's really important to share your work um, with the right audience before it's finished and polished. The wrong kind of feedback can send a writer down the wrong road Mm. or completely change um, the intentionality of the work. So I've learned over the years to be very selective about who I share my writing with at early stages, but at the same time, working with the network that I have built um, makes me a better writer. And I hope makes them better writers too. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're friends, um, but we don't do a lot of socializing together because our relationship's really, really centered on the work, and that's very intentional.
0: Mm-hmm. Now. What's, so what's COVID been like for you as a writer and, and maybe for some of the other people then that are part of your um, immediate writing community? What's it been like?
1: This may not be a popular answer, but it's actually been great.
0: Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that from people that write.
1: Yeah. Um, for one thing, um, it completely destroyed our social life. So (laughs) instead of rushing around, um, going out for dinner or lunch with friends or having people to the house, really, really um, batten down the hatches to keep ourselves safe and had more time for reading and writing than I've ever had in my life. So that part of it's been quite luxurious. The other thing that it's done, is it has really encouraged us to share work electronically. So instead of waiting for bi-weekly get togethers, some of my friends, for instance, we share work as soon as it's done. We mm-hmm. zip it out and um, we use review comments in word to write our critiques and zip it back. And so the, the turnaround for feedback from the writing network has been um, much, much quicker.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting that it, you uh, that uh, you used a technology that you'd always had access to, but all of a sudden now it became a part of the process of how you worked.
1: Exactly, and the other thing was, you know, I, if, if previously before COVID, if I shared a draft of a rough piece of writing, usually about 10 pages with someone, They would read it, think about it, we'd meet for tea, and they'd talk me through how they felt about it. But when they have the document in front of them on screen and they're using review comments, they're actually noticing minutiae in a way that they might not have done before. So if I've used the wrong word or if the semicolon really ticks them off. Where you change tenses without even realizing it and and instead i get this whole column of written comments and thoughts and suggestions about word choice so the feedback is much more detailed and uh, much more precise so so, uh, that's not something i think will change i think we'll continue that practice that's interesting that it built a habit that it's a new habit that's rich
0: yeah what do you find as your what's your impact been like on the others? What do what do they tell you about it? Your you've described from your perspective. What do you think they would say?
1: Well, there's lots of different people. So, so um, some of them are published writers who are very successful, and um, then there's Donna Morrissey, who's my writing mentor, who. I still have critique my work. I pay her to be a story editor. So there's those kinds of relationships. Then there are people in my smaller um, writers group. We meet at each other's home every three to four weeks. Um, One of them, um, they're all published writers, but at different, in different platforms. So one of them, has done a lot of writing for women's magazines. One of them was um, formerly a writer for um, CBC, BBC, and the Chicago Tribune. Um, Another one is a self-published writer. Um, Another one um, is brand new to publishing, but has worked on screenplays um, for Hollywood. So all kinds of different writing experiences. Um, So I think that I've been able to share with them some of my experiences getting published, for instance. Um, And I think, I know they say that's helpful. I'm also very, um, I call myself linear. My husband says I'm not linear, but I I like to follow um, a logical process. When I'm doing something a linear process, when I'm doing something creative, which which I know sounds a little odd,
0: and I oh, think... but so true. And most people don't believe that that you do a linear process in creating. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can have that argument again.
1: <laughs> so, um, but some of my friends who are writers <clears throat> are not at all linear and have had no experience with blocking or doing outlines or or planning. And so I think I've been able to help them with those skills. Um, I try very hard to be generous and to be encouraging, um, but also to be truthful. I mean, if um, something isn't working, um, then there's a way to point out the ways in which it isn't working. We did have a member of our writing group, and this was a very painful chapter, where her writing was of a very high caliber, but the members of my writing group felt that if she ever published it, it would be devastating to the people she was writing about. And so ultimately, she was uninvited to continue to be a part of the writing group one of the most painful things any of us has gone through. Mm, Um, But but we felt very strongly that her words were going to hurt people that were precious to her. And um, she felt very strongly that she had the right to write whatever she wanted, but we didn't want to be party to that. Um, So that was interesting. I I hope that at some point um, She comes to appreciate um, what we did and why. Um, But making those kinds of decisions um, is tough sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think needful. So I hope um, that my friends will say that I've been encouraging and supportive (laughs) um, in concrete ways.
0: Now, you mentioned about that at one point your group would get together Um, each other's homes or whatever so geographically you're not far apart so are you all rather rural small town residents
1: well (laughs) again there's more than one group in my network so the group that meet in my home somebody's from little britain somebody's from uxbridge somebody's from prince albert um, and two of us are from Port Perry.
0: Yeah, so pretty local. Yeah,
1: very local. And again, that's deliberate because you want to be able to you, get together. You were
0: trying to get together. And,
1: absolutely, yes. absolutely. Um, but, you know, there are another really good friend that I exchange work with on a regular basis um, is in Bickering. Um, and someone else is towards Wilfrid Way
0: and that's just a little far for those um pick up casual meeting or meeting meeting up in person yeah so we
1: they, we still do we typically meet partway through like mhm but um and then of course people out of province you know i i have a couple of writing friends in the states that I'll share work with and um one in vancouver and then donna's right now in halifax
0: mhm so
1: you also write,
0: um, is it a blog or a newsletter? I, I, what um, do you call it? Is it a blog <laughs> or is it a newsletter or is it both?
1: Well, it's a couple of things. Um, the Pine Ridge Arts Council um, has a newspaper that they produce every two months. And I have a column called Lucy's Writing Room, or The Writing Room. I think it is called now. And um, I write for that um, newspaper. There is um, an online magazine in the United States called Silver Sage Magazine out of um, Bethany, Pennsylvania. And it's um, an American sort of Zoomer magazine, but it's online. And um, I've been writing for them for several years. And uh, I write articles for them on all sorts of things. Um, that's quite fun. And um, I also um, work on contract um, for the school board, um, doing research and um, some communications work um, for them on special projects. So um,
0: people could read more about where you're writing about writing if they get the newsletter from Pine Ridge Arts Council. And um and then um to actually buy your work, well, if somebody's visiting in Port Perry, they can come into the schoolgog art space and they can buy your books there. So that's great for the people that are local or visiting. And so if somebody's not visiting Port Perry anytime soon, how do they get a copy of Eleanor Cortown or Stella's Carpet?
1: Um, well, unfortunately um, Stella's no not Stella's carpet Eleanor Curtin is now out of print Um, so Blue Heron Books still has copies of it I have copies of it Scugog Arts has copies and um, Lindhouse Museum has copies Um, so that one is eventually going to be more difficult to get to get hold of. It's available in the libraries. Um, so um, most of the libraries around here have copies. There's a book club set at the Scugog Memorial Library.
0: Oh yeah, they have an interesting program, don't they? At the Memorial Library for book clubs. Yeah.
1: And so that book club set would be available to any of the Durham area um, libraries. Um, but as I say, Blue Heron still has um, a nice inventory of that. Marzipan Fruit Basket and Stella's Carpet are available at Chapters Indigo, Amazon, Blue Heron, Scugog Arts. So those two books are still widely available. Um, but you asked about, you know, where people can learn about my writing. I do have a writing project I'll, I'll, I'll share with you, Marion. I have pulled together, um, 19 articles on writing and about the writing process and am self-publishing a little tiny book called Thoughts on Writing and, um, I'm quite excited about it. Um, it won't be very expensive. Um, it, it should be around $10 I think when it's finished. I'm not getting very many copies published, but I do do a number of writing workshops at libraries, um, the Historical Society, Lindhouse Museum, etc. And people are always asking for these things. Um, So I've just decided to collect them. And if people are interested, um, that will be available as well.
0: Yeah, and once you publish, I think Skougag Arts is definitely going to be a place where people can buy that, right? We'll
1: That would be fabulous. Yeah, we'll, really
0: we'll, like work on, we'll work on that. Yeah, for sure. That sounds great. And uh, so thank you, Lucy E. M. Black. This has been absolutely wonderful.
1: Thank you so much for everything you do to support local artists in the oh. community. We appreciate your yeah. efforts.
0: Yeah, thank you. And to our audience, Chi Miigwic, for spending time with us today. Thanks to The Wanted for their song, Before the Fall, and the Ontario Trillium Foundation for the grant that got this done. Visit skugogarts.ca to get the scoop on what we're up to and join us every week for another episode of Art Waves.